Welcome to the Courage Rising Podcast. I am Genevieve, and I am dedicated to shining a light on women's stories of empowering themselves through struggle, hardship, and pain, and creating beautiful lives of purpose, passion, and love, showing us what it means to truly thrive after trauma. Each week, I release a new interview with women showing great courage in sharing their stories. To connect with the Courage Rising community on an even deeper level, join the free Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Courage Rising podcast. Thank you for joining us where stories change lives. Thank you for tuning in to the Courage Rising podcast. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Rachel Roberts, who is an incredible counselor, mentor, guide, who works with couples and individuals um, with a focus on relationships and connection, really helping to translate the masculine and feminine languages. Uh, and uses soul modes, um, uses the Enneagram, and a bunch of different personality systems. It sounds like you are a personality system nerd like I am. (laughs) So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I would love to start off with just explaining a little bit about what you do right now and what your life sort of looks like right now before we sort of go into your story. Sure, sure. I I started my business relatively recently. Um, I got my Soul Mode certification with Carly Marie, um, mainly uh, because I was noticing that relationship coaching is... um, very often the soul modes framework really helps women kind of identify what they need and what they want and figuring out the difference between those two things is actually really hard for us as women. So um, that soul modes framework really gave me a tool to help a lot of women um, in their relationships and how they translate. They're able to now communicate some of those needs better um, with their partners. Um, So that is something that definitely has been a supplement, a great supplement for me in my work. Um, And I'm actually, Right now, also working on uh, Mama Rising, which is another program that I think is wonderful. It's about something called matrescence. I know some of you have heard about it with uh, Amy Taylor Cabaz. She is um, phenomenal about motherhood changing a woman and and how that also relates to our relationships with our partners. Um, so, yeah, I, I use a lot of different... Um, personality typing, there's, there's personality typing systems tend to be very surface, but when you go down the rabbit hole, you find there's a lot of, a lot of stuff there, a lot of meat there. And a lot of times that can be kind of a doorway into some of the deeper issues that, that couples have with each other. So it's, it's very useful information and, and different frameworks we use to, to work with those couples. Um, so yeah, I'm a mom of four. I have, um, I'm married 21 years to my husband, John, and um, it's been a wild ride <laughs> for those 21 years. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. I was mostly a mom for all of the, all of those 21 years. I, I stopped my career so that I could homeschool my kids. And so I, I homeschooled my kids and 
had a big, long, adventurous life with children. And now my kids are mostly grown now. So I focused more on my own individual work with and doing something that I love to do, which is working directly with people. So. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is definitely an adventurous journey, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's amazing. And it's really amazing to see where you are and how you're doing. And um, it's really incredible when we're able to now like focus on the work we want to be doing in the world. So it sounds like you're doing that and it's incredible. Yeah, very fulfilling. <laughs> that's amazing. So I wanted to um, ask you then about sort of where you came from, um, whatever parts of your story that you're willing to share. Uh, you know, for a lot of us, it, we came from difficulty or struggle or trauma, and it really helps for us to be able to, you know, hear stories from other people who have been through it and, um, and how they've been able to really grow and thrive from that. So, uh, yeah, so I'd love to hear about, um, about your story. Sure. Um, I've been trying to figure out how I'm going <laughs> to share and, and what pieces of this I want to share. Um, you know, as you know, some, a lifelong uh, journey with trauma is something that's like, wait, what parts and pieces of that do you share? Because it's such a long process where you're um, really reflecting at, at different times in your life on what you've been through and where you're at and how it affected you and, and how, how you are now. Um, so, so it's been actually very cathartic for me to kind of observe that from, you know, the outside as, um, to prepare for this interview, because, um, I, I have a couple of different things that happened, uh, from in my childhood. My childhood started, um, uh, with a perfectly wonderful family. I, I grew up in Hispanic culture. Um, I grew up in um, the South, so it was a very weird mix of being Hispanic and also Southern. I had a Southern drawl. <laughs> but um, I, I grew up in a, in a family that definitely believed in uh, corporal punishment and punitive, you know, um, I don't know what you call that, but um, it, part of the problem with it was that it was very much tied to the frustrations and angers of my parents. So in general, mostly my mom, uh, and she was, uh, I ended up being, um, pretty severely abused, not, um, in a, not in the way that some people are. Uh, I know that their stories can be much worse than mine. However, um, I like to, I'd like to express that usually children, depending on how they perceive their world, um, that has everything to do with, you know, how they then heal from whatever traumas or whatever experiences they go through. So while it may be um, a relatively mild situation for one child in the family, it may, you know, the, another child in the family may have received it in a very different light or from a very different perspective. So, um, you know, I have siblings in our family who very much uh, don't consider that we were in any kind of abusive situation. So, all of that to say it's all relative and, and how you feel about your, your traumas as a child is, you know, it matters and it's valid. So I, I always like to honor and validate that for every person because um, who you are as a child stays with you for the rest of your life. And you keep referring back to that, that child. So 
Um, So my mom was a very loving mother. She was extremely uh, emotional, very caring, very loving, and she was trying her absolute best. So in general, we had a very decent family life. We had a wonderful father. He was fun. He was the fun parent, you know, Um, except for when there were times when we needed to be punished um, or or we frustrated my mother, which was pretty often. There was some reason that all of us children, I grew up in a huge family. There were five of us kids and we also had cousins living with us and it was a very stressful, high energy, intense environment. And so whenever um, our mom would get frustrated or angry, she would take it out on us physically. Um, And I think that what happened back then from the time I was very young was my mother would get so frustrated whether we were having, you know, accidents uh, in the house or if we were breaking something or little things that that all children do. she would just lose her mind, you know. So as a young child, um, I learned to cope with being beaten and receiving beatings regularly. And I know a lot of people my age, especially my generation, um, have very similar stories. And I think that some of us don't actually um, consider it abuse. Um, And it really took me many years to kind of unpack all of that and figure out that, no, actually you were pretty traumatized (laughs) as a child Um, because I tried to make excuses because I had this loving mother, you know, she's a wonderful person, um, except for she could not raise children without, you know, uh, letting her anger out, letting her anger really um, dictate how she was going to handle her kids. And coming from her past, she was actually improving on parenting because she was severely abused as a, as a child and her brothers and sisters were as well. And so um, I think in her mind, she was definitely a step up from her parents and she absolutely was. Um, but at the same time, there were, there were definitely, I remember being a child and looking at my mom and thinking she's so out of control. Um, And I think I knew from a very young age, probably age three, that I couldn't rely on my caregiver to be in control or safe or or calm or um, a source of something that I needed. And so this ties back into personality and typing systems where um, in Enneagram, there are a lot of core childhood wounds that determine your Enneagram type. Um, And a lot of the withdrawn types, there's the fours, the fives, and the nines, if you know anything about Enneagram. And a lot of us are extremely withdrawn. And um, one of my coping mechanisms as a child was to just detach from my body and go right back right into my head so that I wouldn't have to um, suffer or deal with what was happening. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to um, mother, I I basically would have to mother myself. Um, And I think that what happens too is you're, uh, I know for me, I remember being a very young child and looking at my mother with sympathy with with pity that she couldn't get her act together you know <laughs> I actually I actually felt sorry for even from a young child and I it was kind of a, uh, a 
like, it's okay, mom, I, I can just take care of myself. And so that became the theme of my life. I'm just going to take care of myself. So I ended up moving away from home at a very early age. I moved out of, of our house when I was 17. I actually, even before that, from age 14 or so, I started moving in with, and spending summers with an older sibling of mine and just distancing myself um, from that environment because it was just a little bit volatile and and uh, something I couldn't deal with. And another piece that happened at the same time was that around age 13, 14, I was almost at my 14th birthday, um, and I had a brother-in-law in the family who um, was starting to give me and show me attention that was inappropriate for the time, leaving uh, little notes on my pillow at night, um, things like that, and giving me cards, cards that were not meant for brother and brothers-in-law and sisters. They were meant for, you know, couples. And so, um, you know, at age 13, um, you are only beginning to awaken to your body, your sexuality as a, as a young girl, and flirting and, and having that kind of fun relationship with someone and being noticed and, and feeling attractive for the first time in your life is really all very new. Um, and I think that a lot of young girls at age 13, 14, um, they, they don't know what to do with all that and they don't have much guidance. And unfortunately, a lot of the adults around them expect them to already have the maturity and the know-how and the ability to um, to rein that in and control it and and know how to act and act appropriately around men and and somehow all of the responsibility gets put on the young girl to um, to um, handle it you know and anything that happens um, you, you hear a very common phrase with um, with teen abuse that um, she knew what she was doing, right? That you hear that a lot of people will say those words when there's like a 13, 14 year old girl who's maybe dressing a little bit more provocatively for the first time or being a little bit flirtatious with, with men. Um, you'll hear uh, some older, especially older generation, it's getting better um, fortunately, but there's still quite a stigma out there that um, a lot of people will say, you know, she knew what she was doing. She's, she was ex expecting that attention. She wanted that kind of attention, you know, um, which is a disservice that we do to our teen girls because um, it took me becoming a mother of a 13-year-old girl to fully appreciate just how vulnerable and innocent I actually was at that time period in my life. Um, so I guess that's one of the, the points that you were asking about. Um, you were wondering kind of where in my life did I reach like a growth point? Um, and that was a huge growth point for me was having my own daughter um, and seeing kind of, I had two daughters actually, and seeing both of them go through those 13, age 13, 14, where they were just coming through puberty and they're starting to develop and they start, you know, wanting to wear the little cutesy shorts and, the, and they're, they're becoming proud of their bodies. Actually, it's, it's actually a wonderful time for them and a beautiful thing. If we, if we give them the space to kind of enjoy and appreciate their bodies and, and be kind of proud of it. Um, I think that's, that can actually be a wonderful growth 
point for them. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of times we say, whoa, it's time to rein it in and cover yourself up and, um, and any kind of attention that you want is bad or shameful. So um, I, that's a lot of work needs to be done around that for, for teen girls. So that was a big, that was a big turning point for me was understanding and being able to forgive myself for any part that I had in calling attention, you know, to myself at age 13 uh, from my older, much older brother-in-law. I believe he was 22 at the time. So, um, yeah, I, and I had a really rough time with that as well. So I, you know, I say that we had a wonderful family life growing up and we really did. We had loving parents. We had wonderful siblings and cousins and we all grew up together and it was a lot of fun, but there were things going on, you know, that no one knew how to handle in a way that was healthy. And so when I approached my father uh, at the time about my, about the abuse from my brother-in-law, um, he's, his generation and his culture were to, be upset with me because I must have done something to call the attention to myself. So when I went to him um, at age 14 to express how uncomfortable all of this was and that I was sorry and that I couldn't deal with it and that I didn't know what to do, um, his words were, you need to stop flirting so much. That was what my father said to me at the time. And so it kind of solidified that whole self-blame. And, and, you know, of course, he didn't know what to do. He didn't have the tools to handle um, that situation. And this was, this was a very long time ago. So uh, my parents didn't grow up with therapists and psychologists and, and the information, you know, the internet and all of the information we have now to know maybe uh, it was time to get your daughter a therapist <laughs> or, to, or to talk with her a little bit more and definitely no shaming her for her, for her role in whatever had happened. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was a huge um, setback for me because it caused, it took many years for me to get past the self-blame and the, um, for, for that situation. Um, my sister as well kind of blamed me for, for calling attention to myself, um, you know, in the house whenever her husband was around. So a lot of that stuff um, I didn't realize at the time was extremely traumatic. And it took me many years later to even look back on uh, my life and realize, whoa, you know, that was some pretty heavy stuff <laughs> that happened to you. And no one actually helped you deal with it, you know, at the time. Um, and so I kind of, it was up to me to figure out how to deal with it. Um, and so, uh, I, that became sort of my life's journey was to figure out why I had a hard time, um, voicing what I needed, um, which again, goes back to my childhood with my mother, um, of your needs are, you know, important my needs when I was a child were definitely not important. Um, I actually have sensory processing disorder and uh, I remember being beaten because of being uncomfortable with um, a seatbelt or, uh, you know, various uh, textures and things. And I would get, I would get beaten pretty bad for just causing the frustration because I didn't want to put the socks on or I didn't, you know, whatever was happening. It was interesting. My, my youngest daughter actually has some forms of 
and she, she went through the same things and I had to mother her through that. And it's fascinating how you go back to when you have children, your own childhood comes screaming at you. <laughs> you start recognizing a lot of um, things that you lived through as a child and now you see them in your, your children. And, and, you, and it's interesting because it allows you to then mother yourself in the process of mothering your children through that, that difficulty. So, yeah, um, I think mothering uh, was a huge revelation for me in general was as my daughters went through their various difficulties, I could relate back to when I was a child and went through that difficulty and now doing, doing it better, doing, doing it in a more healthy, loving way, helping my, helping uh, my kids instead of hurting them. And um, basically stopping that, that cycle of anger on my children um, that I had experienced with my own mom and with my family in general. Um, and then also with their, when they blossomed into teens, you know, being able to let them know, you know, yes, be proud of, of how you look, you are beautiful. Um, and there is, um, it's not your responsibility to handle someone else's feelings about how you look. <laughs> so that was a huge uh, turning point for me each, as each of my daughters reached those points um, in their lives to relate back to my own. <laughs> yeah, that's really incredible. And your daughters are so lucky to have you. You have so much awareness around it. It's really, really beautiful. Um, there are a couple of things you said that I just think I'd love to just highlight. Um, you know, like all, all children's stories, all of our stories from childhood, right, are so valid. They're all different, right? But um, you mentioned how the perception of the child is it's the most important thing, right? That's our reality. Like what our perception of, of what happened is, like that is our reality, right? Like even if maybe, you know, it can even be at the extreme case of thinking something's happening and it's not actually happening. In our heads, it's still totally happening. It's still completely reality because that's how we experience realities through our, our sensory perception. And so... Yeah. Um, I love that you brought that up. It's just such an important point. Um, it's also so, um, it, it's also so, sorry. Um, I noticed having four different children, how the same experience could be related to so completely different with, you know, by all four of them. Whereas, you know, one, so I always would tell my husband all the time we had, we would have these conversations about parenting and he'd say, well, this is what I told them. This is what I said. Like, it doesn't really matter what the intent behind what was said. It doesn't really matter what we say. It matters how it's perceived by the children. And that's, that's really the key because you want to reach each individual child with whatever they need and what they need to hear. And uh, that, that's very challenging. <laughs> Absolutely. It totally is. And I was talking to um, uh, another therapist I know, and he was saying how, like, he, he says every children has, every sibling of the same family has different parents. Like they have a different family because mm -hmm. they each, experience it differently from within their own selves it's they're at a different age at a different time in the family's growth journey and there's so many different factors that play into that plus you can get into like energetic auras and how everything kind of collides or 
um, integrates or whatnot, but I always uh, found that so fascinating, right? Like every sibling has a different, has a different family, really. I mean, it's just, just like you said, they can have such different perceptions of the same exact thing happening. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and, and I think that, that talking about that gives us the permission to own our experience when our siblings have different experiences than us, right? I'm, a, I'm from a family of four. So similarly, we all have very different um, experiences. And so being able to own that for each of us is so important to us being able to really own our own story. So I really thank you yeah. for bringing that up. And the other point, the other thing you really did such a beautiful job with is talking about how, you know, you can have a loving family and still have abuse or inappropriate behavior going on, right? It's, it's often very complicated, right? These are our formative relationships um, and our nuclear like unit, right? For growing up the first 15, 20 years of our lives. And it's, it's rarely all bad or all good, or not even using the word bad or good, but it's rarely all like one thing. There's so many different factors. And so the way you're talking about how, you know, like they didn't know better, they didn't have the therapist, they're doing better than the generation before them. And also it's not okay, right? It's like just this, it's this tension that I feel like so many of us deal with. And just being able to name that and really being able to hold both of those truths as valid at the same time is yeah. just, uh, it's so important, I think, for us to be able to, you know, like I said, own our own story while not just um, casting someone out as like this um, evil person or something, right? Like this is humanity. This is where we are. And I just, I really love how you explain that. Um, yeah, it's messy. <laughs> it's messy. It's so messy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it really is. It really, really is. Um, so when you talk about how, you know, you, you mentioned the self-blame, right? And so, so many people deal with the self-blame, the self-hatred, the self-distrust. Um, what, I'd love for if for you to expound on that a little bit more. Like what, um, you know, how were you able to get to the awareness that you were self-blaming? Because sometimes we we aren't even aware that we're doing that. And then what sort of helped you to start shifting that? Yeah. Um, so I ended up um, at first, I ended up marrying, falling in love with and marrying um, a version of my mom. <laughs> like they say, you marry your, your parent that you had the diffi most difficult time with. Um, and yep. my husband, God bless him, he's wonderful, but um, he definitely has, uh, and it's, it's really interesting how on personality typing systems, how much he matches my mother. <laughs> so uh, apparently I was attracting and, and seeking to, to finish out some of that formative work, some of that, that uh, dynamic between parent and child, um, where my husband was very uh, assertive, extremely assertive personality type, 
and all in my space. Um, he still is, but I've learned how to, <laughs> how to handle that <laughs> because it comes from a very good place. So it's, it's all how you look at it. But um, so I ended up really our first five, six years of marriage were were rather rocky shaky because what ended up happening was all of my suppression of all of that stuff, all of that fear and just anger from being a child who was so helpless and wanted to fight back, all of a sudden now I could fight back. And it was not a, it was not a pretty picture whenever I would fight back with my husband. Um, I would get violent sometimes. I'd throw something across the room, sometimes at him, um, you know, and, and in our culture, a lot of times um, we women can get away with that because we're seen as the weaker sex. And I, that's actually a whole other topic that we can <laughs> go off another rabbit hole on. Um, but a lot of times men uh, are handling rage and anger issues like this as well. And they're, they don't have the space to do that because they're not safe for their spouse. Well, um, I really should have at the time been getting help because I needed, I needed to work through that stuff without, you know, causing harm to my husband. Um, so we, we really went through some really rough stuff before we finally got a therapist and started working through some of it. Um, so getting therapy was, was huge. Um, and I'll never forget talking with, with one of the therapists, um, he had, he said to me, well, your, your anger is very justified. <laughs> and I, I was like, no one had ever told me that before, you know, like, <laughs> everyone always said, you, you know, you shouldn't be angry ever, you know. Um, and so that was a, an epiphany, like, what do you mean my anger is justified? And, and then, of course, he, he taught us sort of the tools, taught me especially the tools on how to, how to uh, deal with that anger and how to use it uh, to communicate with what I needed and figure out where my responsibility is in this and what and how to express my needs to my my, my spouse um, and one of the other things that he um, helped me with it was a wonderful therapist actually very empathetic was he he said you know you you've got this incredible self-awareness um, for your age and this was when we were we were younger in our late 20s or so he says you got this incredible self-awareness for your age but um, he says I I just don't see why you can't also then see why the sexual abuse that you endured was not your fault. And, I, and like even him saying that was so uncomfortable for me because I still wasn't ready to own that and accept that it wasn't my fault. You know, I still was blaming myself for that. Um, and I think because all these years went by where I was, it was reinforced to me by my father, it was reinforced to me by my sister um, that somehow it was my fault. Um, and I, so I was looking to external sources, external people in my family to tell me whether, you know, what my responsibility was instead of looking to myself, instead of looking in, inward um, and, and really knowing myself. So that self-awareness was lacking in that. I had this big blind spot there where I didn't want to look at what I had done and where, you know, I just, I think I had just suppressed it all so much that I didn't want to look at it at all. And if I had, if I had looked at it maybe a little sooner, I, I might have seen that, uh, yeah, no, you're not responsible for what happened to you at, at such a young age. Um, and also you get that cultural, like I said, the stigma around, you know, you, a lot of people will, will, um, come to the rescue or aid and be very sympathetic to a very small child that is abused because they feel that that child had no part 
in, an, in the abuse. Um, but as, as a child gets to a certain age, past puberty usually, all of a sudden that shift in blame starts changing. And, and societally and culturally, we, we do tend to blame the younger girls, um, even though they're still very young. Um, so I often wonder, like, what age do we stop blaming girls for? <laughs> uh, what's, what's the ceiling there? It, it, of course, it's different for every, every child because everyone matures and grows at different rates. So, um, so yeah, I, that therapist actually really helped me uh, spin my perspective on that and really dive deep and take a look at some ugly stuff that I hadn't wanted to look at before. Um, and, you know, it was amazing after that, uh, a lot of this, a lot of the anger started melting away. Um, a lot of the rage of needing to fight back against something started dissipating a little bit. Um, so, and then, like I said before, having my own daughters go through that age range was another eye opener. It was another layer like, oh yeah, wow, really, there's so much innocence there at that age still that, um, that you can't blame yourself so much for, for this. So um, yeah, it took many years of working with the therapist. I mean, we didn't work with that therapist for many years, but sometimes it's just those few eye-opening things that, that cause you to go down that path and say, oh, I'm going to open this door and see what's behind it. Um, and, and really gets you kind of back on the right trajectory, getting on a more healthy um, path to recognizing yourself. And I think what, what ended up happening over the years is, is inner work is really always at, at the end of, it's always the answer that you're looking for. Whenever you're having difficulty in your marriage, difficulty with your children, difficulty with anyone, um, it, it's always inner work that probably has to happen. Um, I shouldn't say always because there are clearly abusive situations where you're, um, you're not responsible for what's happening to you. Um, however, in, in the normal course of, of our days, whenever we are uh, acting a certain way, totally losing, losing it, being frustrated, being angry, what, whatever negative emotions are coming up are usually tied to some inner work or belief systems that we're, we're holding and we just haven't looked at. So, um, so yeah, I think that um, just guiding people to do that in a way that's kind and compassionate to yourself is incredibly important. Um, because there are so many wounds that we have that we very often don't want to look at, um, especially um, from childhood. And they always say, you know, well, it's the past, leave the past in the past. But unfortunately, the past will keep manifesting in your life in ugly ways if you don't directly deal with that um, past <laughs> traumas, especially. So, yeah, I think that it's something that inner work is usually what you end up needing to, to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, inner work is always, right. Like you said, the environment sometimes for sure needs to change, but it always comes down to the inner work. Um, and it's interesting right. you so, talked about, um, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. So, so like the inner work, ne yeah, it needs to be done so that if, if your environment needs to change, you can recognize that and, and take the necessary <laughs> steps. But it's like, it always goes back to that inner work <laughs> so that you can, you know, express what you need and, and get what you need in, in life, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. 
And you mentioned how, right, like with the, the story about your anger, I feel like there's so many, um, so many of us that like when we're suppressing an emotion, we don't think we're suppressing it because we're overreacting in it all the time, right? Like we're express, like we're, we're overreacting in anger. We're overreacting in whatever it is. A lot of times I think it shows up as anger, but um, it can be depression. It can be whatever it is. Um, it's actually right. Often there's a suppression of that emotion at the core of being okay. And like a, and a shaming, right? Like being okay with expressing the emotion, knowing how to actually be like, Oh, I feel angry. It's okay to feel angry. I'm not going to shame myself for feeling angry and then sort of vacate. Right. And then just react. Um, right? Like so many people are like, well, I'm not suppressing it. I'm angry all the time, but it, right. There's a suppression of this like core. It's okay to feel that emotion. Right. right. Sense, which, it's just one step. I always say anger is just the first step. You, you have to then journey into finding out what the anger is trying to tell you. I, I, I recently did a post where I met, I likened anger to a courier. It's, it's a courier from your heart, letting you know something is off. Something's not okay for you. But if you're going to have the courier fight your battles for you, like how effective is that courier going to be? He's just the messenger, you know, <laughs> but unfortunately we all, we all use the messenger to fight the battle. And then we wonder why we feel awful afterwards. And we don't, we didn't really get anywhere. We didn't actually accomplish anything. Maybe we get a temporary quick need met you know right at that moment but it's not the it's not the long-term you know plan that we want for ourselves so anger oh. should just first step <laughs> oh my goodness I love that analogy so much I'm gonna remember that <laughs> I'm gonna remember that it's like the core it's like the little messenger it's so true oh my goodness I love that um so I'd love to hear like when you talk about how um mothering your own children really helped you through that process because you're able to sort of see your own inner child and your past in your own children. Uh, I would love to just know, like, if you were talking to another mother right now um, or talking to the mothers out there, like how, because I, I don't think everyone is always able to view, um, and, and I'm sure it's always difficult to view what you're going through with your child in that lens. And so is there something like a reminder or something that you would tell yourself or do to really be able to get yourself in that mindset to have that be right. I'm going to help my children through this differently than I went through. And, and I also see myself in that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that again, that inner work is, is incredibly important so that you, you do start becoming a little bit more self-aware of yourself in every exchange with your child. Um, I think that most of the time as mothers were exhausted, especially when our kids are little um, and it, like, you know, most mothers would be like, yeah, I'm too tired to be doing any kind of <laughs> self-awareness right now. I just need the kid to, you know, um, to pick the, to eat the sandwich or to, <laughs> whatever the thing is, you know, it's like, it's not all that complicated, right? Um, yeah. But I think the thing that I always uh, try to get moms to, to realize is that um, we're really, in raising our kids, we're raising ourselves still. 
Um, and so it's okay that you don't have all the right answers in the moment. It's okay. So a lot of self-compassion is incredibly important for mothers. Uh, there is no guidebook. And like we've been saying, every child perceives things very differently than, than you even intend at the time. You know, I'll never forget my, my youngest daughter throwing a mo massive monstrous tantrum outside in the driveway. And she was, I was pulling her along and I, her, she, her hand slipped out of mine as she was tossing and thrashing about and she fell onto the ground and on the driveway. And she looked at me and said, you pushed me. She was only like three. She says, you pushed me down. I was like, oh my gosh, like another thing you're, I'm going to get blamed for here. <laughs> you know? So it was just fascinating to me at that moment. It was a real eye opener that however the child is perceiving the interaction, like there are so many layers to every interaction that you do with, with every person, honestly, because there are energy fields, there are there are wounds, there's all sorts of stuff. And sometimes there's lack of sleep going on, especially for moms. Um, so, you know, a lot of self-compassion is necessary to, to know that there is no right answer. There is no one way to deal with this. Um, but to always have in the back of your mind that you are still raising yourself. You're not you're not expected to be an authority or, you know, um, I mean, you, you sort of are for your children because they're looking to you for answers, but it's okay that you don't have all of the answers. And with that perspective, you can really um, step back a little bit more from every interaction that's difficult or frustrating you um, and really take some time. Just take a breath and step away until you can breathe. A lot of my um, healing has come through breath work um, and somatic mm -hmm. uh, work that I've had to do because like I had said before, my traumas put me in my head and away detached from my body. And so mm -hmm. I really needed to get connected with my body to bring those back up, to, to bring in some of those experiences and connect them with my head and my heart and getting it all working together so that I could get these clear messages on, you know, what was really going on. Um, so yeah, the detachment you shouldn't be doing as a parent because you're, um, it's very easy to, to just labeled the interaction as I'm the authority, you're the child, this is what needs to happen. Um, and you're, you're very disconnected at that point from your body, your, your heart. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's confusing to, to parent children, quite honestly, there are so many situations that arise and you think to your, you're thinking in the back of your mind all the time, what, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> like, is, does this kid need discipline right now? Do they need a hug? Do they need, you know, what do they need? Um, and very often you need to step away and just figure out what it is that you need to do some breath work and, and remember that you're still raising yourself. You're, it's okay to be compassionate with yourself in those moments. Um, and the, the kid is not going to learn everything they need to learn from that one interaction. So we, have, we do have a tendency to do that when we're dealing with a tough kid. We will sit there and be like, oh gosh, I have to do this right because the message I'm going to give is going to stick with them the rest of their life. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I promise if you just hug your child through a tantrum, you know, it's not going to t teach them that that tantrum is is always the right way to get a hug. You know, it's, it just doesn't work that way. So doing what feels good for you as a parent and for your children is usually a, a good ticket to, to getting a good answer. Um, and if you can't, if you just can't uh, find that kind of love and compassion for yourself and your child at that time, the best thing usually is to step back 
and just breathe and give, give your child some time away from you and you some time away from your child, if it's possible. It's not always possible, yeah. but it's usually a I good bet. <laughs> yeah, that's so beautiful. It's, I mean, right, like, like all of this, it's messy and <laughs> complicated, um, but I, yeah, I love your emphasis on being able to step away and just sort of ground yourself and get embodied into your body again. Um, embodiment is also a huge focus for, for me. I, I just think it's so important um, for anyone who's been through any kind of trauma because we do tend to escape into our brains. Um, so you're saying breath work has helped you with embodiment and with heart opening as well? Yes. Yeah. My I'm actually, I'm, I'm only dabbling. I, I'm not an expert by any means, but in the chakras and it's fascinating how my voice, um, whatever this chakra is, and I still don't know them all, but it's fascinating to me when I do work with um, coaches on breath work and, um, and somatic response and stuff. It's, it's always been difficult for me to find my voice. And so we've done, I had a, a great coach um, years ago, actually, she worked, did some somatic work with me and, and she says, you need to make sound, like make a sound while you're, and I, and I just couldn't, I could not bring myself to, to vocalize, to, to voice what I was feeling. And that was, that was huge. That was another, you know, revelation for me as to my voice had been stifled for, you know, most of my life. Um, from abuse and, you know, not being able to express what I needed and say what I needed. Um, and then when I did speak up and say what I needed, I was shut back down very often. Um, so it really took me many years to find my voice and to, to be okay. And I still struggle with that. That's something that continues on where, you know, even just this interview, I have a, sometimes like you'll see me pause and, and just be like, like, <laughs> I have to, I have to get the stuff to come out. So there's like a little extra obstacle there for me sometimes, but yeah. And it, it'll just be something that I continue to work on, you know, um, probably for the rest of my life. I'm getting much better at it. So. <laughs> well, you're definitely doing wonderfully on this interview. So <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that um, is so common when our trauma resulted in repression, right? Like when we have been repressed, being able to um, speak up, it's, it's like, it is like, it's like breaking through a barrier every time. And um, I think it just gets easier. Like the more that we do it and the more practice we have, I feel like it gets easier and the barrier becomes less thick and huge, right? It goes from being a brick wall to maybe being like, you know, drywalls that maybe eventually becoming like feathers or something, which would be, would be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the ideal. <laughs> or no, that's probably the ideal, really. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, and I think too that that's, that's where anger comes in so much. It's like when you don't feel you have a voice, a lot of times you will tie, you, you will, you'll use anger as your voice. Your anger becomes your only way to speak up for yourself and, and, that's how you think you need to get what you need um, is to use your anger and say something. But of course, that's not the healthiest path for, for actually getting what you need. And then that's like a, you know, the anger shame cycle where you express your anger and frustration with something and then you feel awful because it doesn't give you the result that you were looking for at all. It just makes everybody around you 
you know, feel, feel worse. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's something that you do get better at as you go through and you, you stop that cycle, um, and learning how to, con- how to, how to use your voice in a healthier way and how to, how to use your anger as just the messenger. And then your voice can actually with, with tying back to your heart, give you this compassionate, um, expression of what you need at that time, which is, people can be much more receptive to you when you <laughs> it took me many years to figure that out. It seems so simple, but <laughs> it's funny how it took years for me to get there. Well, it's counterintuitive that being gentle and compassionate can actually be stronger, right? Than being forceful. It's yeah. counterintuitive to what we believe. So it's vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. So if, um, if people are listening and they're interested in, um, working with you, um, because you clearly have immense knowledge on all of these relational human mothering topics, which is amazing. Um, what is the type of work that you do or like, are you accepting clients right now? Like sort of what you're offering in the moment? Yeah, I do. Um, I do one-on-one work. If you want to book a session with me, anyone that, that is interested, um, and I walk people through, they can do either couples work directly with me. So I can work with both. Um, usually it's usually partners. Um, but I can also work individually with, with someone who may be having relationship issues or, um, or mothering issues and their, um, their partner may not be ready or willing to, to join in a session. Um, so I also do individual work as well. Um, and I, I do use soul modes, um, just kind of as a framework for flow, but that doesn't necessarily have to come into the, um, to the sessions. Um, a lot of, some people are not familiar yet with soul modes. It's a, it's a wonderful breakthrough for women, I think. But, uh, so I, I can, I can kind of clue people, clue some women into how that works. And, and a lot of them, them find that that's, that's a great epiphany for them. To, um, oh, wow. That's why I do that. That's, that's how I work. That's what I need. Um, so yeah, you can book a session with me. Um, you can go to my website. It's, it's uh, actually just through Facebook right now. Uh, Rachel Roberts, uh, wish W Y S H. Um, and the wish stands for what your soul holds. So what um, your soul holds. Oh my goodness. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Facebook.com slash Rachel Roberts WYSH, or do you have a separate website? Rachel Roberts WYSH. Yep. On Facebook and on Instagram. That's huge. That's my handle for both, both of those sites. Yeah. And they can book directly through there. Um, I'm also going to be launching a program soon. I'm, I'm actually curious to know, um, just common uh, questions that people have about their relationships and maybe kind of what they want to see and do a little uh, short uh, group program. Uh, Sometimes people are a little bit more comfortable opening up about their relationships in a group setting, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it works easier for them to know that uh, these other couples also have these very similar issues. So um, yeah, and I'll put that in my, I'll put that on my site as well. There's a link tree in my bio and Instagram that you can go and uh, you can see the Soul Modes movie if you're interested in that. And uh, you can also book a session directly through that link tree link. Awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah, definitely being able to connect with other people going through um, similar things in community is great. Um, and yeah, Soul Modes, such an incredible book uh, and pro- program um, with Carly Marie. I actually just read the book recently and it's been really um, it's, it's an easy read, which is great. And, uh, but it gave me so much, um, 
info on, right, the different ways we can cycle through our emotions and how we can sort of bridge the gap between the different parts within us, which I just, I love so much. And we're both, we're in the mad mentorship with Carly Marie. So we both love her work. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah so, great. Like, yeah, having like-minded communities is amazing. Um, and just, uh, just to end, like, is there something that you would recommend or give, you know, some guidance or advice to somebody who, you know, is maybe um, really still struggling with the cycle of self-blame and um, of getting triggered and of sort of having, feeling like they don't have control over their emotions and whatnot. Um, is mm -hmm. there something you would say to somebody sort of in that, um, still sort of stuck in that, that paradigm, that, that cycle? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say first and foremost is to be very kind to yourself. Your heart um, has been wounded and it needs love, a lot of love to heal. Um, and and self-love is probably the most important thing, which is something that most people struggle with. So you're not alone in that you are struggling to find self-love. That's, that's a common theme, especially uh, among women. Uh, and so that healing process is, is, it can take many years and that's okay. Um, I saw something recently about some therapist was promising changing your life in like five minutes or something. And I was just like, oh gosh. <laughs> so I mean, sure, I, I guess you can change a few things in five minutes and, and mindset. And, and that mindset isn't an incredible thing. Um, but when you're dealing particularly with someone who has years of abuse or trauma in their past, um, it's not going to take five minutes. And so being, giving yourself time to go on that journey um, and recognizing your triggers as an opportunity to go inward and and look at how you're responding, look at how you are um, handling, because the key really is in those triggers. Um, and unfortunately, we tend to shy away from them and we tend to, to shut them out because we want to stay in our comfortable place of, I'm gonna just stay up here in my head and, and that triggers me, so I'm gonna avoid it completely. But if you can patiently and carefully examine each one of those as they hit you take some time for yourself do some breath work i would i would seriously recommend going into some somatic or breath work um, learning some uh, work with a coach on that um, i'm not an expert on that but i i highly recommend finding a, a breath work or somatic uh, instructor and uh, mm -hmm. that really can tune you in to how you're processing all of this in your body and why and and it allows you to kind of step outside of what you experienced um, after you after you go through that trigger and that work, you're able to to basically sit with your soul and know that that you're going to be okay, you know, um, and that you, you just you're going to keep working through it. But it, you, it it gives you an incredible amount of confidence and um, just the ability to know that everything is going to be all right now. You're not, you're not, the trigger is there from what happened. You're stronger now and you're capable and you're, you can look at it and your soul is there to experience all of those things and learn from, from it. So use the, use the triggers as an opportunity, I would say, to examine your, what you've got going on a little bit more closely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It comes back to that 
to that inner work always. And when you said your heart has been wounded, I got chills. It's just, it's, that's, it's okay, right? Like everything's okay. Everything will be okay. And it's okay to know that that has happened and that you can come back from it, you know, that you can love yourself fully in it. So that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it so much. Oh my goodness. Definitely check her out. Rachel Roberts, W-Y-S-H on Facebook or Instagram. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It was great to be with you. Thank you for joining us at the Courage Rising podcast, where stories change lives. And don't forget to check out our free Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash Courage Rising podcast. See you next week, my loves.